Hebrews chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, a severe warning. A severe warning. The question tonight, what does God do with our sin? What does God do with our sin? May we pray. Our Father, we ask you in these next few moments to answer that question for us and to speak to our hearts about the seriousness of sin and the wonderful plan God has for taking care of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For the word, for if the word spoken by angels was steadfast. Now, I take that to mean the word, the law, the Ten Commandments. They were mediated by an angel. If the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. Now, that's a principle. Every transgression, every disobedience will receive a just recompense of reward. Be sure your sin will find you out. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall they also reap. He that soweth to the flesh shall the flesh reap corruption, carrion. He that soweth to the Spirit shall the Spirit reap life everlasting. That's an eternal principle. It never changes. Therefore, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Now, this is written to believers. <clears throat> There's a principle here in which it, is, it can be applied to the unsaved. But it's primarily written to save people. It's written to Hebrew Christians, Christian uh, Jews who had become Christians and come to know the Lord. Now, in some instances, they were not really saved because they were about to turn away and go back to Judaism. And the writer of Hebrews is encouraging them with this thought, where would you go but to the Lord? You go back to Aaron, he's empty. You go back to the Old Testament Jewish uh, altar and the sacrificial system, it's all empty now. You go back to the Old Testament law, you couldn't keep it. It was fulfilled in one person, the person of Jesus Christ. And so the whole argument of Hebrews is, where would you go but to the Lord? There isn't any place else. And in this passage, he presents the principle that every transgression Every disobedience must receive a just recompense of reward. So we ask about our sin. Are we forgiven of our sins because we say, Lord, I didn't mean to do this and I'm sorry? Are we forgiven of our sins because we say, Lord, please shut the mouth of lions and don't let anybody know about it? Are we forgiven of our sins because we placate God. Martin Luther was over St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, climbing up the steps on his knees, doing penance for sin and saying, Lord, please forgive me of my sins. I'm, I'm, I'm doing all these penance so you'll forgive me. And suddenly there came to his mind 
that verse, the just shall live by faith. And he stood up on his feet. He said, I don't have to do this anymore. I am justified by faith. Now, as we think of this tonight, we think, first of all, the origin of sin. Turn your Bible to Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel chapter 28 for just a moment. And let's see what God says here. Beginning in verse 11, Moreover the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyre, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and beauty, and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardis, tobas, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, the gold, the workmanship of, thy, of the of the uh, timbrels and of the flutes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. Thou art the anointed cherub that coverest, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled uh, with thee with violence. Thou hast sinned. Therefore, I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub. Now, as far as we can tell, that's the first mention historically and chronologically of sin. Now, we know that Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, but this happened before that. Satan had already been cast out. And when Satan appeared to Adam and Eve, he had been cast out. He appeared as an angel of light, a beautiful, beautiful creature. And this scripture mentions that. But he had been cast out of heaven because of rebellion. That's where sin originated. Rebellion, pride. I want to be equal with God. There's a passage in Isaiah that says similar to that. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 2, if you look over at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, and notice what he says here. Jesus will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, it's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so he wants everybody to come to the knowledge of truth. The reality of sin is testified by the Scripture. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord had to lay on Jesus the iniquity of us all. And in Romans 6, we, the scripture says, the wages of that sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The scripture, and we could go all the way through the Bible and testify to the fact that the Word of God says we're all sinners. In Romans 3, he says the whole world is guilty before God for all. There's no difference for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, the experience of life itself testifies to the reality of sin. You think of Moses. Moses was a great, great servant of God. We, we were discussing the other night some things about with a, with a man that sort of believed you could be lost after you're saved. And uh, I mentioned Moses to him. 
I said, now Moses received the oracles of God, and he came down and gave them to the people. He led the children of Israel out of, Israel, out of Egypt. He was God's somebody. Now I want to ask you, when he broke the symbolism, when the Jews were murmuring against him and they wanted water, and God said, you strike the rock once, and water will come, and he did it, and water came. And some time later, they were murmuring again. They had forgotten what God did. And God said, just speak to the rock. The rock represents Christ. He's not going to be smitten twice, just once. You speak to the rock, and the rock will give forth water. But Moses was mad and angry with the people, and he smote the rock. And water came. But God said, Moses, you can't lead the children of Israel into the land, the pleasant land, into Canaan. And he called him on home. And I asked this man, do you suppose that Moses went to hell because he disobeyed God? Well, he didn't know what to answer. I said, some years later, maybe two or three centuries later, in the New Testament, we find Jesus taking Peter, James, and John up on, I think it was Mount, uh, the mountain where the snow cap is all the time, Mount Hermon. And there the Lord was transfigured before them. And who appeared? You, you tell me who was there. Moses and Elijah. Well, if Moses went to hell because he had disobeyed God, he must have had a resurrection from hell. And I don't believe he came from hell to talk to Jesus about his decease on the cross. You see... That's a terrible principle. People don't understand it. Every transgression and sin must receive a just recompense or reward. That's eternally true, and we'll get to it in just a moment. But Moses sinned. You think of David. Hardly anybody committed a worse crime than David. He committed adultery, and then he covered it up. And he had Uriah, the woman's husband, killed at the front of the battle. He told lies and covered it all up until one day God put it in the heart of a preacher. His name was Nathan. You go visit the king and you tell him this illustration and then put your finger in his face and say, Thou art the man. And that man with great gall, great spiritual authority, he didn't care to be a popular preacher. Nathan came and put his finger in the king's face and said, Thou art the man. What did David do? He got down on his knees and he said, Lord, I've sinned against thee, thee only. Cleanse me, wash me, and I'll be whiter as snow. I give myself anew to you. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. What God do? God did what he said he would do. He restored him. And David became the great king. And all through the years that followed, the nation Israel said, we want a king like David. And when Jesus came, they said, he is a man who will sit on the throne of David. What God do with that sin? You think of Job, who said, I am vile, I abhor myself. 
Or Isaiah who said, Woe is me, for I'm undone. Or Daniel who said, My comeliness is turned to corruption. Or Peter who said, Depart from me, I am a sinful man. Or Paul who said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. D.L. Moody used to say, The man I have the most trouble with is the man that walks under my hat. I think all of us would say the same thing. Well, think about the nature of sin. The modern man says that sin is an indiscretion. God calls it iniquity. The scholars call it ignorance. God says it's ignoble. The evolutionists call it the trait of the beast. The Bible says it's the root of bitterness. The Christian scientists say it is the absence of good, and God says it's the depravity of man. The fleshly man excuses it as an amiable weakness, and God calls it a damnable wickedness. The new theology calls it merely selfishness. God calls it willful rebellion. Sin, according to Romans 3.23, is missing the mark. Sin, according to 1 John 3.4, is transgression of the law. Sin is bending that which is right. If you had uh, a piece of steel that was holding up a structure, and somehow that piece of steel got bent, and the structure couldn't hold up anymore, that's the picture of sin. It's the bending of things that are right. And we're surrounded by it all the time, and we battle it in our own lives. Sin is rebellion against God, according to Isaiah 1-2. Sin is a debt, according to Matthew 6-12. Sin is disobedience, according to Ephesians 2-2. Sin is a deviation from God's requirement. That's the reason Genesis 3 is called the fall. It hurts. The devil said, you'll not surely die. God knows the day you eat of that, you'll be like God. And they ate it, and their eyes were open, and they had the terrible burden of sin. The evidence of this is they hid when God came walking. God had been their friend. They loved him. My God and I walk hand in hand together. They could sing that in the Garden of Eden. And then when they sinned, their eyes were open. They knew they were naked. They went over and hid behind some bushes and tried to sow some fig leaves on themselves to cover their nakedness. And God came and said, Where art thou, Adam? God knew all along where they were. He was calling for Adam to confess his sin. That's the way it is with us. When we sin, we may hear that voice inside, Where are you? What's happened in your life? 1 John 5.10 says sin is unbelief. Romans 5.6, sin is ungodliness. In Galatians 5, sin is iniquity, a wrongdoing in the moral order of the universe. Well, what does God do with our sin? I want you to hear this. Left to itself, God does nothing with it. Not anything. It grows like a cancer on us. 
had become so enmeshed and entangled in our lives that after a while, when God looks on, he sees our lives choked by sin. And what can God do? I don't even like to preach that. There are some men in the city of Bowling Green, some women in the city of Bowling Green, maybe some young people whose sin has become so much wrapped around them that God cannot do anything. You see, some people think that God's some kind of a great sovereign being. He'll reach in here whether you like it or not. And he'll yank your hair. He'll come and get you like I'm going to. to the tug of the gospel of Christ. America has had more light than any nation on earth. There's been more preaching of the gospel. There have been more missionaries sent out from the shores of America. There have been more churches in America. There's more freedom on radio and television in America. And yet we're not influencing society. There are enough churches in Bowling Green, if we could gather together, we'd outlaw all the liquor. There are enough churches in Bowling Green, if we would, and, and in Kentucky, enough Christians, if we would gather together, we could put out the lottery gambling. But you see, we don't take stands on anything. So what does God do? He says, okay, you go on. If you can live with it, you go on. You see, God is not some monster that imposes his will on anybody. When God begins to work on your life to call you into his service, he doesn't make you serve. Everyone who serves in the king's army is a volunteer. There are no draftees. God doesn't say, Lloyd, you've got to lead the singing at Glendale. You've got to do it whether you like it or not. He doesn't do that. He puts it on his heart. There's a need, and he says, here my Lord, use me. And that's the reason he leaves us. God didn't say, Eric, I'm gonna make you be a preacher. Whether you like it or not, I'm gonna make you be a preacher. Now, you be a preacher. God doesn't do that. He stirs his heart with a still, small voice. And God whispers in his heart. And Eric says, here my Lord, send me. There is in this auditorium tonight a vast, power unit. If we could offer ourselves to the Lord, God could use us to make a difference and a change in our world. Thank God for over 200 young people. I do not know how many more than that who have sat where we sit, who've heard the call and tug of God at their hearts 
and have marched out the door to take the gospel around the world and to man the preaching stations around the world. Why would they do that? God make them? No, no. God just spoke to their hearts. Now, sometimes God speaks and we won't listen. I think of Lottie Moon. Lottie Moon was a great, great Christian. Every Christmas we observe Lottie Moon Christmas offering and try to give money for world missions. Lottie Moon was engaged to a, quote, Christian, end quote, professor in college. He later went to the Louisville Seminary and was a professor there. They were engaged. She came back to America to marry that man. And when she began to talk to him, she learned that he had swallowed hook, line, and sinker, the liberal position. And she prayed for him and she pled with him. He would not change. And Lottie Moon said, I cannot give my life to one that does not believe the Bible. She went back to China and lived 40 years over there by herself. Later, that man went down, down, down. Finally, he never even went to church. Why? He heard the tug of God at his heart. He said, no. Some of you are hearing the tug of God at your heart. God is dealing with you. He wants you on the altar for service. And you're saying, no, I'm not going to leave Glendale. I'm not going to leave Bowling Green. I'm not going to leave my family. I'm not going to leave the people that I know and love. I'm just not going to do it. And God says, all right. He steps back and says, you go on. I'm not going to make you do anything. But that's terrible rebellion. And there'll be a wage for that rebellion. All right. Left to itself, God doesn't do anything about our sin. We can go on in sin, and the wages of sin is death. And when the New Testament speaks of death, it's talking about hell. It's not talking about just physical death. Brother Eric brought a great message on the new birth and said something like this, he that is born once dies twice. He that is born twice just dies once. When you're born physically and you never have another birth, you're going to hell. When you're born physically and spiritually and you're born again and you love God and you give yourself to Him, you'll never die again. You may die, go through the physical thing of death, but you're going to go out into wonderful life eternal. Jesus said those that do not believe in Him are lost. They're condemned. They're filled with guilt. They're on the way to perdition. Eternal hell. Well, what does God do with our sins? That is, those of us who come to Him. He said, He that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. He won't cast you out. He loves you. He will hold you close to His heart. When you come to Christ, are you perfect? No. Well, what about the sin that you commit? I want you to go with me to Jerusalem and go out the north wall and out the Damascus gate 
and pretend like it was many, many years ago. The bus station is not there and all those buildings are not there. And you look up and you see a skull-shaped hill. And you see a man over there on a cross and two others on a cross near him. And here is the Son of God on a cross. And he cries out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And God, for Jesus' sake, forgives those who come to God with their sin. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but Jesus washed it white as snow. What does God do with our sins? In Isaiah 43, 25, he blots them out. They're just as if they'd never been there. When God looks on, he sees the blood covering. In Isaiah 43, 25, he does not remember them against us anymore. And when we come and say, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry for that sin. It's been haunting me and the devil's been casting my teeth. God says, what sin are you talking about? I don't remember it. It's forgiven. It's under the blood. In Isaiah 55, 7, he will have mercy. In Micah 7, 18, he takes your sin and drops it in the depths of the sea. In 1 John 1, 9, he forgives and he cleanses us from sin. In Isaiah 1, 18, he changes the color of our sin. You think of that. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. He changes the color. And when God looks on, he doesn't see the filth and tragedy of it all. He sees the blood of the crucified one. And my friend, if you put your sins over on Christ, if you've asked him to forgive you and cleanse you, don't go back and waller in the hog mire again. Go on to victory. But wait a minute. Suppose you do sin after you're saved. And if I asked for a show of hands tonight, if we were honest, everybody in this room would say, yes, I've sinned since I've been saved. And I'm sorry. Why are you sorry? Because God hurts your heart about it. The Holy Spirit that lives inside of you disturbs you. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, he scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye be without chastisement, whereof all partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. If you can sin and get by with it, you've never been saved. Now, you may get a cold, hard heart, but that's after a while. When you first are saved and then you sin, it hurts you. And my friend, if it didn't hurt you, you probably had a fatal flaw from the first in your faith. A miracle takes place when you get saved. The Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you. You see, to become a Christian doesn't mean here's some doctrines out there and I believe that, or here's a church I think I'll join, here's a baptistry I think I'll get baptized. To be saved means that the Holy Spirit has worked in your heart and striven in your heart and make you aware of your sin and how dreadful it is and how terrible it is and you're on your way to hell and you come and say Lord be merciful to me a sinner I believe that what Jesus did on the cross was enough and I trust Christ I invite Christ to come into my heart and he comes in and he says I'll never leave you 
He's not an Indian giver. That probably is not a good expression today. But he's not that kind of person. He gives you something, takes it away, and gives it back to you and takes it away. He isn't like that. What he gives, he gives forever. Well, what happens to our sin? He puts the sin behind his back. And in Hebrews 9, it says he covers our sin with his blood. And in 2 Samuel 12, 13, he puts away our sin. And the passage that Brother Mike read a little while ago from Psalm 32, would you listen to this and maybe turn to it for a moment? Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. He covers your sin. He covers it with his blood, the blood of Jesus. So what does he do with your sin? He covers it. He changes its color. He puts it in the sea of forgetfulness. He remembers it against you no more. He puts it behind his back. Isn't it good to be a Christian? Isn't it good to know that our sins are under the blood and forgiven? Now every transgression and every, uh, every disobedience must receive a just recompense and reward. What are you going to do about it? Jesus paid it all. He didn't pay part of it. He didn't pay half of it. He didn't just pay for your past sins. He paid for your past, present, and future sins. And he covers them with the blood. So that when God looks on, he doesn't see our sin anymore. He sees the blood atonement. The night the death angel passed through Israel, God had said, Moses, you tell everybody to kill a lamb. And you take the blood of that lamb, put it on the lentils over the door, and the death angel will pass through. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And when the Lord sees the blood of Christ applied to your life and your heart, he passes over. Now, we must say this. When we as Christians sin, God hurts us. Sometimes it hurts our testimony. Sometimes it lays our honor in the dust. Sometimes it causes others to lose confidence. But with God, God forgives. And then we serve a God of a second and third and fourth chance. Isn't that good? You think of Jonah. I asked that other guy we were talking with the other night. I said, what about Jonah? He disobeyed God. Was he going to hell when he was in the fish's belly? He was, he was rebellious against God. They didn't know how to answer that. The interesting thing is that the, the, belt, the, the whale or the fish, whatever it was, belched Jonah up on dry land. And God said, Jonah, I still want you to go to Nineveh and have a revival meeting. And he did it. That's a second chance. John Mark quit on the Lord. He just quit. He was with Paul and Barnabas going to, on the first missionary journey. They got over to Asia Minor. And the, the Bible says that John just quit. said, I'm going home. He went back home. He was a young man. What happened to him? God kicked him out. A thousand times no. When they got back to the Jerusalem and Antioch area, Barnabas took that dear young man, John Mark, took him under his wing, went down to Cyprus. We never hear of Barnabas again, but we sure hear a lot about John Mark. John Mark had another chance. 
He's the one that wrote the gospel according to Mark. He's the one that Paul said just before his death on the Appian Way in Rome, send Mark. He's profitable to me for the ministry. I want to tell you, we have a God of a second chance. And if you've flubbed up and if you've had to sit on the bench and you feel like you've been guilty before God, take your sin to Calvary. Ask him to cleanse you. And he'll put the sin behind his back and in the sea of God's forgetfulness, he'll cover it with his blood. That's what God does with our sin. And he'll do that for you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we have such a wonderful God who made arrangements for us in our weakness, in our penury, in our sin. He provided a way back. And Lord, we know that you don't make anybody get saved. You don't go pull them down the aisle. But you speak in a still, small voice. You encourage and you urge them to come. Lord, we pray that even tonight, somebody who has been rebellious against God or who has said, I'm going to have my own life plan. I'm going to do what I want to do with it. Lord, break their hearts. Help them to see that God's best is always best. And Lord, I pray that everyone in this place tonight that has had the devil cast sin into your face and accuse us before you that we'll know that God can cleanse and forgive and give us another opportunity to get back in the battle. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.